It is uh, it's my deep bass. It is good to be together this morning. I so appreciate Roman doing such a wonderful job last week bringing the word, and uh, it's so so neat to have uh, two sons now. And I've had multitude of conversations with Uriah. Uriah is 18 months old, and Matthias is two weeks old. And I've had several conversations with. Uriah to begin to, to take on this brotherly role, that this is baby brother and he should love him and not try to hit him, uh, valuable things. And it was just so neat. This, this past week, uh, Uriah, he always sleeps with this little bear, raccoon-looking creature uh, that he's adopted to be his sleeping buddy. <clears throat> and, he, and, he, and he waddled up to Matthias, who Sarah was holding at the time, and he, I mean, he, he needs this thing to sleep, but... It, Matthias was sleeping there on her, and he gave Matthias his bear. And it was all of a sudden, it was just, I mean, he can't speak, really, you can't really articulate, but it was one of the, such a sweet act that seems like he got it. You know, this, this idea of this responsibility and this love and care for his younger brother, this act of love. In our letter today, as we begin the, the third chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul has a fatherly role and there's no doubt in my life there's going to be just a, a wealth of conversations of, that I want to be able to have with my sons and the responsibilities and to prepare them for the dangers and, and, and aspects of life that are, that are going to come at them. I want to prepare them. And in our letter now, we're moving to a point where, where Paul is really driving home crystal clear for Timothy the danger and the reality of what will happen in later days that the false teachers that are already in and around his congregation are going to be intensifying. And that there's this future application that, that applies to us here today, 2,000 years later in Nacogdoches, but there's also a, a present reality that Timothy is to apply to his life for the sake of the church and his love for the body. And there's these two reality-shaping conversations, these two truths that Timothy has to believe and he has to anchor himself to for the good of his congregation, or his congregation will begin to be continually impacted and sucked away by these false teachers that are making their way in and around the congregation. And they're targeting specifically what we're going to see in the letter he calls weak women. These are, I want to generalize that as gullible people, people that are on the fringes people that we should be protecting and discipling and, and developing. There's false teachers, there's predators by either teaching or worldly behavior that is coming around the congregation is trying to entice them to walk away from the faith, to walk away, I should say, from the congregation. And so this warning of these two, two truths are vital for Timothy, so much so that, that Paul's going to say, avoid such people, Timothy. And in later days, as this intensifies, avoid such people. And the truth is so clear and so, so poignant for us that today, this is just as clear. It's a different setting, it's a different context, different technology now, but the truth is the same. And what's going to happen, what we're going to look at as we walk through these two points, is he's going to give us a character sketch. He's going to give us about 19 different descriptors, 19 different adjectives that paint a profile of those who are leaders of the lost. 
that will sound a lot like the false teachers he's already called out by name, and a multitude of people that will fit that profile from all time until Christ returns in his reign and rule on the earth. Now, as we get ready to dive in here, I do want to forewarn you parents, if you have elementary children, we, we love that you, you bring them to our service, but I do want to warn you as we walk through these adjectives, it will, will cause us to deal with some more mature material. So this is going to be kind of a PG-13-ish uh, sermon as we walk through a couple of these adjectives. So I do want to forewarn you there. It's totally your discretion, but don't say, I didn't tell you so. All right, All right so let's begin as we, we're going to go to verse 1 of chapter 3. Notice in the first of these two eye-opening truths that take place in time in the last days. In time, the fruit of the lost will ripen and make itself known. In time, the fruit of the lost will ripen and make itself known. And there's two particular elements about this point I want to draw clear to us. The first is this, that the lost, and specifically, I think we're really looking at the leaders of the lost, those that are trying to entice those who are either very weak in the faith or new to the faith, the lost will perceive right and wrong. They'll decide what's right and wrong, not by the Word of God, but rather by their natural impulses. So the battle cry of the lost will be what is right for me and what is wrong for me as a, as a family, as an individual, and as a culture and a community is what is natural to me. What impulses do you have? If you have impulses, well, they must be good. Pursue them. That's going to be the battle cry of morality, right and wrong, for those that will not be characterized as those who are of Christ. So let me read for us verse 1 through 5 as we look at this first point. Again, the lost perceive right and wrong by their natural impulses. Verse 1 begins in this fashion. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Remember, it's future-oriented, but it's also going to be present-applicable. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then he says what? Avoid such people. That's why we say this is future-oriented but also present-applicable. So it's the very beginning, last days there will come, it's future for Timothy, but it's also present. The last three words we looked at there in verse 5, avoid such people. As we come to this verse, we want to do the exact same thing. Realize that there is future application, so if the Lord should tarry for another several hundred years or thousand years, there's going to be future application of this in a heightened degree. But there's present application for every believer. And I think this is important as we discuss things as they increase in hostility towards the last times. We should never turn this into a, just a simple Bible study that stops without intensive application. Anytime we come to the Word, the Word calls us to live for transformation. It's to impact how we as men, husband, uh, and treat our responsibilities. It's to impact how we, as, as, as you as ladies, live through all your responsibilities and aspects of life. When we come to the truth of God's Word, it demands a transformation of our lifestyle. Truth must lead to transformation. This is the call of the believer. 
And so even though he's giving these characteristics to the church and to Timothy to be able to profile these particular individuals of the lost, he says, Timothy, avoid such people. So don't just be able to fill it out on a test and say, look, I can think through the 19 adjectives. I did it. But he says, no, no, no. Identify and avoid. We'll talk about specifically what that means here in our text as we walk through this together. So again, I want to be clear. Paul's writing to Timothy in Ephesus, not to Brent and Nacogdoches, the oldest town in Texas, in case you didn't know. But the applications for us are serious. So let's walk through this list of 19 adjectives. I want to give us some quick definition, and I'm going to give you several verses. So if you do have a pen and you're taking notes, I'm not going to give you time to flip over to 1 Timothy and Titus, but I do want to reference several spots in each of those letters so you can see what's taking place. One of our small groups, actually, uh, that meets on Wednesday night, they're walking through 1 Timothy because they see how good of a balance that is. If you're not involved in a small group, I encourage you, pray about possibly signing up and getting involved with one of those. So let's walk through here. Beginning number one and number two, the first two adjectives. We have those that are lovers of self, number one. Number two, lovers of money. And I don't think it's an accident that these are first. I think he's going to bookend this with number 17 or 18. Lovers of self, lovers of money. Now this can be confusing in our culture because I don't think any of us would say, hey, you should hate yourself. That's not what we're saying. Love yourself. It's not the way that our culture, it is somewhat a way our culture presents it. What we're talking about is who is the Lord of your life. This is a love of self that says, I am the king of my life. So if I'm going to care for myself, I need to do whatever I want to do. I want to be comfortable with my impulses. I want to be comfortable with how I feel. That's who I actually am. So I'm going to water that way of living and way of thinking. It's a love of the self. It's a self-lordship. It's a self-rule. Paul gives that as the first marking of those who will be leaders of the lost. They will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. There's two profiles that are being painted. And by the way, many of these, as we walk through here, are kind of the opposite of the 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, qualifications for elders. They're like anti-elders that he's presenting in these two arguments. So again, they will pursue their self-desires at the destruction of anything else. The most important thing in their life is their own interests and pleasure. So lovers of self and lovers of money, you can write down 1 Timothy 6.10. Important to recognize that we oftentimes this gets misunderstood. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money, the pursuit, the sacrificial giving over of oneself for the acquisition of the ability to acquire things or or power over people. So the lovers of self and lovers of money, first two characteristics. Look at number three and number four, proud and arrogant, proud and arrogant. Proud is a way of thinking, I think I'm better than you. That's pride. I think I'm better than you are. Arrogance says, I feel like I'm better than you. You see the difference? I feel like I'm better than you. There's these two words that you know it when you see it. You know what I'm talking about? It's like putting lemon juice on a meal. You don't need to really see it to know it when you taste it and you're around it. You know it. The irony is when pride and arrogance begin to attack our lives, we're usually the last ones to realize it. Because by nature, what they do, they're like numbing agents for a surgery. Pride and arrogance, they numb us. We're the anti-elder characteristics. Five and six, abusive Abusive. 
So this is their tone of speech. It's aggressive and dishonoring of others. Number six, they're disobedient to their parents. These two are probably kind of married together. It's presenting the opposite of the servant mindset. It's the child, it's somebody that's under authority that says the opposite. It says, no, 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 I'm not under your rule, I'm the rule. And so much so that 1 Timothy 1.9 says that the children were striking their parents. Literally, striking their parents. That's the rule. That's this descriptor of those who are lost. There is this hatred of authority, which ultimately reflects a hatred of the ultimate authority, God. No fear of God. We'll see the opposite of that in a moment, by the way. We'll see those that are under authority hate and want to strike those above them. And we'll see the opposite of how those who are in authority treat them down below. Number seven, they're ungrateful. They're ungrateful. By the way, ungrateful is the natural response of self-love. If your life is focused on yourself, you'll believe that you're the Lord of all. And if you're the Lord of all, what do you deserve? Everything. So what's the natural response of self-love? Ungratefulness. But what did the Scriptures tell us? The Scriptures give us the opposite picture. That in our salvation, we're to be grateful. It's a spirit of ungratefulness that births a multitude of lustful desires and intents. Unholy, number eight. This is simply being opposed to the nature and the things of God. Heartless, number nine. Some of your translations might say unloving. That's a good translation as well. This is that other word I was saying. Those that are under authority want to strike up against it. Those who are in authority, parents, they're described as being unloving. Because why? The parent's primary focus is the parent. They don't care about the kid. So by nature, they come off as unloving. Number 10. I feel like I'm doing like a top 10 list. Number 10, unappeasable or unforgiving. The idea is that they're so entrenched as adversaries that says, I don't really care what we're arguing. I just know I'm going to be on the opposite side of you no matter what. Unappeasable. I'm not saying that reflects our political climate. But actually, yeah, I'm saying that totally reflects our political climate, right? Unappeasable. This idea that there will not be peace, I will stand on the opposite side of you regardless of what you say, believe, or do. Number 11, slanderous. These are markings of those in the last times and later times. Slanderous. This particular word is used six times in the pastoral letters. If Satan is the father of lies, slander is one of his favorite dialects. Slander's responsibility is to find something that you could argue, well, it's true, and use it to plant seeds of poison. That's what slander does. We as, as the church, I believe this is one of Satan's favorite attacks on the local church. Number 12, without self-control. Without self-control. This is the opposite of what it says in Titus 1.8 for elders. Elders are to be men who are self-controlled. This is the opposite. Without self-control. This is the argument, if it feels good, you should do it. And not only should you do it, if somebody stops you from doing it, they're immoral, they're wrong. You do you. Right? That's the battle cry of what we're talking about. And the Scripture says quite the opposite regarding bodily lust. And I think that's at the heart of this, is without self-controlledness. Part of being a true man is finding areas of weakness and defending them, fighting for them. And so... I'm going to speak to something very specific that I think is the, with a primary area. This is that PG-13 part, by the way. That is attacking 
our churches all across our country. I think it's robbing discipleship more than any other area of life. It's pornography. It's the word we don't hear hardly ever. I never heard that word once in a church setting. Pornography. I could give you 50 statistics right now that speak about how it's plaguing our culture. Literally, I can give them to you. They're right here. But I don't want to. Because you know it and I know it. I will give you just one statistic. Studies put it at the average age of first exposure to pornography in our country is eight years of age. Eight. Seventy percent of teenagers say they can do things on the computer that they know their parents have no idea about. It is a war that is consuming men, from older men to younger men to little boys and to women, but particularly men. So men, I want to speak to you specifically, high school on up right now. Ladies, stay here. Don't leave. That'd be weird, but stay right here. Okay. I want you to imagine that a middle school boy came up here right now, because I promise you I could find him in our church. I want you to imagine they came up right here and they took this mic and they said, listen, I didn't mean to look at pornography, but I did. I can't stop. Can you help me, sir? That little boy looks right at you. He says, can you help me? What would you say? As a man, I'd hope you say yes. But now my question is, how are you going to help that boy? How are you going to help him? He says, I want to walk to purity, but I'm trapped. We're going to spend five Thursday mornings, beginning this Thursday morning at 6.30, giving you a blueprint for not only personally how to fight against the lust of pornography, but how to equip your brothers in the faith. And ladies, I'll make this content available to you as well if you like it. There is a war. There is not an enemy at our gates. There's an enemy in our pews. There's an enemy in our homes. There's an enemy in our bedrooms. There's an enemy in our pockets. As technology advances, it's going nowhere. And what it does is it robs a passion for discipleship. Because it heaps guilt upon guilt upon the body. So beginning this Thursday at 6.30, just five weeks, five total hours is all I'm asking. And tonight we're going to get together at Zach's house at 5 o'clock. We're going to eat meat. This is just an excuse to get together and eat meat in reality. It's going to be kind of a kickoff. But ladies, let me, let me challenge you. There is nowhere you want your husband or son or man in your life to be than to be a part of this to get equipped. The opposite of self-control. It's waging a war against all that we see around us. Number 13, brutal. Brutal. Literally, it's being like a wild lion, an untamed, unwilling to surrender authority of oneself. Number 14, not loving good. Again, good is defined by that which honors and reflects the nature of God. So not loving good. It's Titus 1.8. Men are called to love what is good. This is the opposite, not loving good. We move on to number 15, treacherous or betrayer. That's Judasology 101, right? 
In order to be treacherous and a betrayer, you have to be appear trustworthy. Trust is given. The whole purpose is to take it from them. Take advantage. Number 16, reckless or impulsive. The verb form, I like this, is literally falling forward. Falling forward. It's how I am towards chocolate-baked goods. Falling forward. Just can't help myself. This is, it's not modern anymore, but there was a saying a few years ago that was, uh, I thought it was cheesy to begin with, honestly. I didn't use it. YOLO. You remember that saying that was popular? That's probably the cheesiest thing I've ever heard in my life. Right? YOLO, it's a saying that was used, meaning you only live once, and it inspired a spirit of recklessness. And overtaking social media were literally millions of videos of people doing something totally foolish and shouting out YOLO before they did it. Right? right. Reckless or impulsive. Number 17, swollen with conceit. This is the warning that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3.6 for why Timothy should not appoint in the churches elders who are new converts. This is pretty neat, isn't it? So think about this. He says, you got this, this man that appears to feed, that makes all these qualifications, but he's a new convert. Timothy says, no, no, don't do this or he could become swollen with conceit. And in 2 Timothy, in this list, he gives descriptions of these men who are monsters in the congregation. They're leaders of the lost. So somebody that appears so good, they're placed in a position of authority too quickly, they can easily become swollen with conceit, acting like the lost. And number 19, though this is possibly not, you might not count this as, as one I, I do. As we go into verse 5, it's having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This is when we shift, I think, into this image of these are clearly people that have a predatory nature. They're lost, but they're predators. The context of the local church. They appear godly. They appear with the language. They have the t-shirts. They know the vernacular. They know the routine, but they are at their heart anti-spirit living people. And these people are in Ephesus, and they're, they're creeping in in all kinds of different places. And what does Paul tell him to do with the last three words of verse 5? Avoid such people. I think our translation to ESV is good, but I think it's, it's too minimal. Literally, the idea is avoid them with horror. Like a haunted be horror. Because the judgment of God is going to come upon them, and you don't want to be there associated with them, is the picture. It would be like in a lightning storm. By the way, the sirens yesterday were loud, weren't they? They didn't even go off. You do tornado sirens? Do we have tornado sirens here? Okay, good. I didn't hear them. Jumping back into the sermon. If there was a lightning storm like yesterday, and somebody pulled a golf club out and started running around, you would say, don't do that, but you wouldn't just say, don't do that, would you? You'd say, don't do that, right? Is that right? That don't do that. You're warning them, but you're clearly getting away in horror for the judgment that could soon happen to them. And that's what this is saying. That's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, listen, it's not that you're not rebuking them and calling them to repentance, but you don't want them here. You don't want them in the body. You've got to call them to repentance in a way of, of the living of life to change their beliefs to be that of the word and to change their lifestyle to be that of the word. Don't just let it ride out because the judgment of God is going to come upon it. And we're going to see that happen here more. Look at B. We're going to move into verse 6 and 7. The leaders of the lost will prey on 
rather than protect the weak. This is why God's judgment will fall upon them swiftly. The leaders of the lost will prey on rather than protect the weak, church. Verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households, and they capture weak women. Or some translations say gullible women. Much like the serpent did with Eve. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They creep in. And what's their goal? Their goal is to burden the weak. Their goal is to burden the weak. And how do they burden the weak? By enticing them with various passions. In Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are free. Death has been slain. Our guilt has been borne on the body of Christ. But what these enticing teachers will do is they're trying to re-entangle you. So we don't know exactly what they're doing if they're either, A, maybe looking at the, the church's sinful past and saying, hey, you did this once. Do it again. Or you messed up so bad, there's no way God will forgive you. And I think in the immediate context, it, we get an insight in 1 Timothy 5. We're not going to look it up, but you can read it yourself. 1 Timothy 5, he warns the young widows. He tells them, if you burn with passion, ladies, get married. I think that's our key insight here. That in the church, these young widows, there's a bunch of them, and these predatory men are seeking into the conversation. They're learning the language. Oh, we're here. With the goal of getting these women to have relations with them. And it's leading to massive guilt and a massive burdening of their lifestyles. And that's impacting what they believe. You see, here's the reality. What we believe will impact how we will be living. And I think this is why so many high school students will graduate and go off to college and end up denying the faith, or at least living functionally as atheists. No connection to a local church, no desire there. I think it's because there's an idea. This, it's called cognitive dissonance, right? It's this way of thinking. If my way of thinking doesn't match my way of living, something's going to have to give. I'm either going to have to change the way I'm thinking or I'm going to have to change the way I'm living. And if what I'm, how I'm living feels really pleasurable, guess what? It's a lot easier for me to change what I'm thinking rather than my social circle that I base my identity off of. What Paul says is, no, don't do this. Align your life to Christ. Guard your beliefs and behavior. Guard your beliefs and your behavior. And if you love one another, and we do, Guard each other's beliefs and behavior. The leaders of the lost, they will prey on rather than protect the weak in a desire to preserve their lifestyle of self-lordship. And will they get away with it? The answer is no. The answer is no. Look at big idea number two. Key truth number two. In time, the judgment of God, it will be poured out upon the leaders of the lost. In time, the judgment of God will be poured out upon the leaders of the lost. In two ways. First, we look at age in the very beginning of verse 9. The wickedness of the lost will still be restrained. Part of God's blessing, like a dog on a leash, is restraining the wickedness that he allows the wicked to be able to endure and to inflict, I should say. The wickedness of the lost will be restrained. Look at verse 8. He says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. 
men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they, verse 9, look at this, but they will not get very far. There's a limit to what they'll be able to do. He gives two parties, two sides. We have Moses, historically, and by the way, I want to have you go ahead and flip there in your Bible as I'm speaking on this first point. Flip over to Exodus chapter 7, because we're going to read that in just a moment. Exodus chapter 7. So we got Moses on this one side who is represented by Timothy. Timothy, you are in Team Moses. Two teams. You're in Team Moses. Timothy and, and all these godly believers, all these elders you've appointed, these people abiding in the faith, you're in Team Moses. Moses, Aaron, this team. And there's another team that's in your church, Timothy. They're wreaking havoc in Ephesus. And this is Team Janus and Jambres. Now these are false teachers this is interesting. The Bible doesn't actually tell us who their names are or exactly who they are. But he writes as though it's common knowledge, and it is, seems to be common knowledge, that these are two individuals that are given the title of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. These are the lead magicians, historically. And their responsibility and their abilities is they have serious power of influence. They have an ability to, to deceive. And it's impressive and it's oppressive. But there's a limit to what they're able to do. So as you think about the, 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 the miracles that he does, that Moses and Aaron do, it, it ultimately, Janus and Jambres do something, whoa, that's impressive. And what does God do? Whoop. One ups them. There's a restraining to what these deceivers will be able to actually do. They will not get very far. The Psalms take this same mindset consistently, don't they? There's this reality that things are terrible. And so it begins, usually the Psalms kind of begin with point number one, God, you are awesome. Many of the Psalms, God, you are awesome. And then number two, but God, there is horrible things happening. People are being destroyed. Our land is being annihilated. I feel like I'm going to die. Number three, God, where are you? Are you going to do something? Please move. Number four, but you are good. You're good. And you're going to make all things right. Number five, so I trust in you. So I trust in you. Paul does the same thing for Timothy. It seems like wickedness is thriving out of control. But, though Pharaoh's magicians seem to be succeeding, there's limits. Their time is coming like a clock. So the wickedness of the loss, it will be restrained, but look here now, towards the end of verse 9. They will be exposed and consumed by the wrath of God. They will be exposed and consumed by the wrath of God. Look how verse 9 continues. For their folly will be, all, will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now look over in Exodus 7, because here we go. Exodus 7, verse 8. Remember in this scene, we have the Lord doing miracles and, and the magicians doing deceptive miracles, these, this trickery. And in this scene, I think we get an incredible insight of comfort for Timothy, and for us today, we're going to make some quick applications on it after we read it. Verse 8. 
of Exodus chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, and then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Notice Timothy is to be obedient to God in the face of treachery, wicked deceivers. So you, see, you already see the parallel? Your team, Moses and Aaron, you be bold in the face of deceivers. That's application number one. Timothy, you be bold just like Moses and Aaron were bold and do what the Lord says to do. So listen to the word, listen to the scripture. So look at the save, verse 10. So Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, again, that's given historically the name of Janus and Jambres, they also did the same by their secret art. So they do this powerful deceptive act as well. But now look what happens, verse 12. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs consumed. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Those who are wicked will be exposed just as the magicians were, and they will be consumed just as their counterfeit serpents were. If you look at your way of living and your way of believing, it does not conform to the word of God. Be fearful that you'll be consumed or you'll be allowed to consume yourself. But the joy of what we have as believers is that it's not our righteousness that makes us right with the Lord. It's his righteousness he's given to us. Some quick applications. Where the truth is preached, expect counterfeits and deceivers to lurk. So guard your beliefs and your behavior. Guard your beliefs and your behavior. The way of the world is powerful, but God will ultimately consume the way of the world in judgment. So in seasons of your life where you look around and say, God, how are you going to make this right? Realize that God will make it right in his time. Trust in him like the psalmists. And then finally, when we are exposed to truth, give glory to God. Run to God. Live out the truth of God. Lest we become like Pharaoh and harden ourselves against the goodness of God's word and nature. Put simply, run to Christ. As worship team comes, I'm going to walk through our next steps. Next step number one. Is there a sinful behavior in my life that might make false teaching more appealing to me? So is there a way of living? Is there a secret sin? Is there something in my life that I know I need to do business with God in? That I need to confess it to God? Because I know it's just a matter of time before that really begins to work its way into what I claim to believe. I think this is where groups and being a part of accountability is so vital and healthy for our Christian walk. People that we can allow into our lives to say, hey, I am wrestling with this and I need to do war with this. Will you help me? Is there a simple behavior in my life that might make false teaching more appealing to me? And secondly, is there a false teaching in my beliefs? Is there something that I'm 
stuck on that might be fueling me to a lost way of living. We measure all things according to the Word of God. The Lord is good. When the Word says you will be forgiven if you but come to Christ, you will be forgiven. And if you've confessed your faith in Christ, you are secure in Christ. So abide in Christ. Run to Him. In our text next week, please don't miss it. Paul is going to give Timothy the keys to being a rooted disciple in Jesus Christ. He's given him the scared straight honest talk. And he's going to remind him, Timothy, when the storms of life are coming at you, here's the deep roots. And don't worry, because you're rooted in the one who will withstand every storm of life. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ, you will stand. He is worthy of our lives. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In all our victories, Jesus is better. In all of our pains and hurts, Jesus is better. In all of our comforts that we so long for, Jesus is better. In all of our riches, Jesus is better. Make our hearts believe. Would you pray with me? Father, we truly believe that Jesus is better. Lord, we thank you that we are secure in Christ. We thank you that you do not give up on us. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would minister to our hearts, that you would fuel us to fight against sin, and you would bring us a spirit of joy as we aim to be your bride in this world, a bride that calls other people to come with us, a bride that warns other people of the reality of what will happen to those that resist and fight against the Lord and deny him, deny the gospel, and aim to entice and lead others away from the faith. But Father, we thank you that we are holy and forgiven in Christ, that all who will come to Christ, they find a perfect Savior, a perfect King. We truly believe Jesus is better. Lord, help us to believe that even more this week. We love you. In the name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said together, amen. Would you stand and sing with me?